Welcome to Sex Ed with DB. I'm your host, DB. Let's get into it. Welcome back to the podcast. If you love and support the work that we do, head to www.sexedwithdb.com and buy some of our hot new merch. Follow us on Instagram at sexedwithdbpodcast. And if you want to advertise with us, shoot us an email at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. Today, I discuss the relationship between reproductive justice and environmental health with Deandra Marizet, founding member of Intersectional Environmentalist. Deandra uses her work to elevate intersectional sustainability through the lens of social impact and culture. With a background in fashion and community building, Deandra uses her ongoing study to unpack the importance of cultural preservation and ecofeminism. Clap it up for Deandra. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Pandia Health, the only doctor-led birth control delivery company. Most birth control is free with insurance or for $15 per pack without. Your birth control comes with free delivery and free goodies. And you can get an online doctor visit if you need it, which is perfect during COVID-19. Go to pandiahealth.com. That's P-A-N-D-I-A health.com and use code SEXEDFREE to get a free telemedicine appointment for the first 50 people who sign up. Offer only valid in Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, and Wyoming. Ever wish you had an exact replica of your gorgeous parts? Well, now you can make one yourself, thanks to Clonawilly. Clonawilly and Clonapussy are DIY molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva at home into a high-quality sex toy or memento. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase at www.clonawilly.com. Follow them on Instagram at clonawillykit. Deandra, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? Hey, it's going great. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. I'm very, very excited to have you on. This is, uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, this is our first focused episode on environmental reproductive justice. And I'm just so excited that you are going to be the person to educate us today. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is a very cool intersection and of topics. And I'm really, I'm really jazzed about it. Incredible. Thanks for having me. Of course. Um, let's, let's get started by you sharing your name, your pronouns, and how you identify, whatever that means to you. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Deandra or Didi for short. My pronouns are she, her, and that's me. Amazing. And how would you say that you identify? Um, oh, yes. So I identify as a Mexican-American. I think that one of the fun things in my studies right now is unpacking just the, the potential, you know, problematic identity of being, quote unquote, Mexican in and of itself, which is, you know, fascinating to me. And that's something that I'm, you know, super open to changing down the line. But I think for now, for better or for worse, we are we are Mexican. Love it. Really? Yeah, I would be also interested to hear about the nuance conversation there. Um, yeah, for sure. And and what was sex ed like for you growing up? And, and so you said Mexican-American. Were you born and raised in America? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Texas. Born okay. and raised in Texas, grew up visiting family in Monterey, Mexico, Monterey. Um, beautiful, beautiful part of 
Mexico, um, but you know later later in life have not had as much of a chance to go to go visit, but definitely had enough experiences to you know feel super connected to my family there and a lot of the issues that tend to cross the border. Gotcha. And in terms of your sex ed experiences growing up in Texas, were they existent? If they were existent, were they good? <laughs> what, what's the deal? Uh, yeah, so I do have a vague memory. So, you know, when it's super vague and ambiguous, I think it's a clear indication that it wasn't that impactful. Mm. But, <laughs> but I do have a vague memory of a bunch of you know, the, all the girls getting like pushed into one room, if you will, mm. on like all the boys going into another room. And at least that's how they were, t- you know, telling us to to split off in that way when we were in elementary school or junior high. Mm-hmm. And I remember being in this room and this awkward old like looming TV tower being scored, like, rolled into the air to our little the circle classic there. TV roll. It's so yeah. classic. Everyone has experienced. It's so unfortunate, but please keep going. I think I know where this is going. Yeah. Like they bring it into the room and you just feel like the tension in the air, right? The te- mm-hmm. like, you're, when you're a kid, you're so much more intuitive than people give you credit for. Totally. And so you're already emotionally set up with this awkward air and the TV rolls in and it's this super awkward video that is teaching me about my body. Mm-hmm. And it it's so painful to me because I think, I mean, you probably talk about this on so many of your episodes, but it's cool to learn about your body. And it's like, it's something that I've always thought was so fascinating, but obviously growing up in a Mexican household, in a Mexican community and just in a Texas school system, it's so taboo. So yeah, I, every time I think of the energy around sex ed in Texas, I just think of that TV bringing in this awkward air into the room. Like that's what I, that's what I think of. (laughs) Squeaky wheels of just like, just like horrible, you know, something bad is about to happen with like the content that you're about to see. Yeah. And I mean, I feel bad too, because I, I think back to that memory and I'm sure the teachers weren't empowered to teach that curriculum either in right. any way, mm-hmm. right. By the systems at large. They weren't so, set up for success. No. So they come in and I just, you, you see teachers approach topics like that. And it's like, you see them exhale before like, oh, you know, <laughs> exactly. They're nervous too. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So that was my experience. Okay. That was my experience. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing. It is definitely uh, a common one, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so with that in mind, I'm, I'm curious about your, your background at large. Like how did you get involved in environmental activism? Yeah. So I would say I definitely came to study environmental activism, but I don't refer to myself as an activist. I would say I'm more of an advocate um, and my background is actually in fashion, weirdly enough. Oh, cool. um, yeah, so I I ended up going to college originally to pursue some type of ocean-oriented environmental study. And then I watched the movie How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. Oh, my God, I love that movie so I much. I love that movie so much. And I was like, dang, actually, you know what? I do love the environment. 
And I didn't have nearly enough seeds planted yet to have made a different decision at the time. You know, no regrets, Mm -hmm. no regrets. I watched that movie and I said, you know what? I really want to be whatever combination is happening here between Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey, like both of their careers that are being reflected in this movie right now. I just went in on that somehow. So I changed to be a business major. Um, And I went to Texas A&M which culturally was so interesting for me. That school is so white and so Christian. And, you know, I had a great college experience, but it uh, I can't say that it made me, you know, the most proud alum ever. Like, mm-hmm. I was never like, rah, 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 A&M. I just kind of got an education and was like, how can I get out of here and hang out with more creative folks that I identify with? So I graduated with my business marketing degree, booked it to New York, started working in fashion and was simultaneously, you know, kind of circling back to all the little seeds that were planted for me during my year. I spent a year living by the ocean in Galveston, Texas, um, cute little coastal community. People like to dog on it. The water's not cute, but you know what? I loved it there. And hey, it's I each had a, own. yeah, yeah. I loved it there. And I lived on the seawall with my dog for a year and I just had a lot of different, you know, environmental seeds planted for me that I could not have possibly recognized at that time, but they started circling back for me mentally when I moved to New York and started studying sustainability and what that meant from a fashion perspective and it kind of helped to connect back some of the dots that were, you know, some of those seeds that were planted for me when I lived in Galveston. So yeah, that that was kind of a uh, simultaneous happening, right? I entered the fashion industry and was also learning and unpacking a lot of things about sustainability and what that meant more so from a consumption standpoint. Mm -hmm. So like, what does it mean for us to be sustainable consumers? And then it took me to this place where I was connecting all of these super powerful dots around capitalism, around environmentalism, around systems of oppression, around feminism, Um, our agriculture system, like it just took me to all these really cool places. Um, And that eventually led me to have this super rad community of people that study systems of oppression and environmentalism across all of these topics that I just listed and more. So, you know, for somebody who loves to nerd out about things like that and just constantly consume information, New York was such a great place. And obviously social media online, I had friends all over that were putting out really cool content and doing really cool work. And it just was such a beautiful way for me to start my journey. Like I I got that community so early on in my journey. So it felt incredibly productive and fruitful. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it, it kind of just brought me into this place where all of it fell under this umbrella Mm -hmm. of environmentalism. And I recognized that really early on because of all the cool people that I got to connect with. That is so cool. First of all, like, Thank you for sharing that. That I feel like it's like kismet, right? I don't even know if I'm using that word correctly, but it feels right. <laughs> Where it's like, you know, you're experiencing <clears throat> you're experiencing all these things and then kind of it led you to this path where at least mm-hmm. what I'm hearing is like it lit a fire within you to be like, "Oh, oh yeah. I like need to transition what I'm doing." because of what I'm learning about sustainability and environmentalism and all the things that you just said, like, I think that's, a, that would be maybe your aha moment. Would it not? Yeah. A hundred percent. I like to think the aha moment was stretched out and mm-hmm. spread over time. It was, it was an like aha sp- year. 
Yeah, it was like slowly collected, like a little bucket, like you're picking up little shells on the beach, right? You're like kind of filling the bucket slowly, but you're filling that bucket very enthusiastically, very excitedly, right? right? So I really, uh, I really loved that, um, that year of just, yeah, lots of aha moments that year. Amazing. Very special. And so tell us a little bit about intersectional environmentalists. So I want to know, how did it get started? What are its goals? And why do you think, this is a three-part question, so buckle up. Um, (laughs) Why is it so important to apply an intersectional lens to environmentalism? Yeah, totally. So I'll I'll open up with um, how it got started. Yeah? Yeah. Does that sound? (laughs) That sounds great. Yeah. So this past summer, um, it really got, I think, kicked off in a more public way because of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many other people. And my my founder, Leah Thomas, um, she had learned about this theory, this concept of intersectionality through its application to feminism, actually. And she learned about Kimberly Crenshaw and how Kimberly Crenshaw, who is a professor of law and critical race theory, was inspired by the Combahee River Collective, which is a, which was a group of black feminist lesbians um, who talked about combating things like racism at the most important intersections of identity and really honing in on people who are most vulnerable by any given issue. And that being essentially one of the most efficient ways to combat systems of oppression. And so Mm -hmm. it's a fascinating study. And so Leah is learning about this and the, the, everything that the uprising of the black black lives matter movement happens. And she just, you know, she's talking to us and she's saying, you know, I just feel like this is something that I would apply to my environmentalism. So created, she created this definition that takes that same notion of applying intersectionality to feminism and saying, Hey, like, you know what, I'm an environmentalist and I can't separate, you know, my identity from like, I can't separate being an environmentalist and being a black woman. And I'm just going to like combine these two things together the way that people do in, in feminism. And that was the story that she was telling us in terms of her journey and her thought process. And so she posts this definition that really just doesn't leave space for people to dismiss those who are most vulnerable by any given issue And it ended up being contrary to her belief and what I would imagine would be the assumption of the belief of many of us in the community, just given the work that we've also done and kind of getting a lot of side eyes and getting a lot of hate for trying to really center people in certain conversations. Mm -hmm. To our surprise, to her surprise, it was very well received and it ended up gaining a little bit of virality. Um, So we decided to at the time, create a website and an Instagram account that I, at the time, I think we thought our community, and when I say that, I kind of just mean the people who are really about the whole sustainability situation, whether that's agriculture, fashion, we kind of already had this online crew going on where like everybody knows everybody kind of thing. And we were like, all right, now we're just going to create a space where we can do some cool work together. Maybe it'll be a fun like collaborative blog of sorts. And it ended up just getting so much bigger than that. Um, and it, it ended up kind of being a, a moment that we figured out that collectively together, all the, all these people that I'm 
kind of alluding to within our quote unquote online community, Mm -hmm. we're really going to be able to make this something bigger, something that was going to alleviate all those moments in the past that we had experienced with people trying, environmentalists trying to dismiss us for centering people in a conversation around protecting the planet. Um, And so, yeah, it just felt like a really powerful moment. We wanted to make it something greater um, as we saw that it had that potential. So we started investing more in the platform, right? We started commissioning, you know, our, our friends, our, our, you know, our friends who are artists, we started saying, Hey, you know, we have a, can I PayPal you some money and you, you can like create this graphic for us and mm-hmm. things like that. And we started reposting some of the things that we thought were really impactful from our community. And I say that because, you know, I, I think it's important to, to pay people for the work that they do. And right. I think that it, it's important to kind of paint the behind the scenes of like, yeah, it literally just started by me, like PayPaling my friends. Like <laughs> that's, that's literally how it started. Um, so today, you know, the, the goal of the platform is to amplify those unheard voices that we've been trying to bring to the forefront of these conversations and making sure that we have the space to work together and help our community connect all those dots that I was speaking to, because so much of the work to really understand the importance of vulnerable communities in relation to some of these issues has already been done. So many Mm -hmm. people have been doing this work for so long And we just need a space that, you know, we we just need a space to come together and educate each other on how to best harness that conversation and develop that conversation and push it forward. So that's what that's what we do today. Incredible. Yeah. Thank you so much for that background. And to to kind of find to round out that very long question, I I think that (laughs) I would love to make sure we get this answer, which is like, why is it so important to apply that intersectional lens to environmentalism, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. I I think that in the past, when we look at how environmentalism has been applied to, you know, solving, quote unquote, solving various issues, it begs the question, who are we solving it for if the results don't if the results haven't actually ended up better for lower income communities of color or, you know, people who are most impacted by natural disasters or the climate crisis, whatever different issues it is that you're looking at, if the result has never actually aided those people, then who is it that, like, who is it for then Mm. if that's the case? So people will talk all day long about the positive impacts of, programs and initiatives XYZ, but when we don't see that translate to the people who are most vulnerable to various issues, well then is it is it a worthwhile form of environmentalism to mm. begin with then? Mm-hmm. So that's why we think it's really important to learn from people who know how to identify who needs to be, who the solutions need to be informed by, right? Like who is most vulnerable within this given issue and how can we let the analysis of that inform how we build a solution instead of applying a very general solution that might not reach certain people and those certain people being those who need aid the most. Very, very well said. Yes, I really, really appreciate. I really, really appreciate that entire thing, but especially the part about like, who is this really for? (laughs) Like when you're thinking Mm -hmm. about like Mm -hmm. the most vulnerable communities and like the impacts of 
the climate crisis on them like isn't isn't that the goal to like make it a more equitable world and i think i just think that's a really really good point um and very well said so awesome and so really transitioning a little bit to the climate crisis um you wear many hats at intersectional environmentalists including being the latinx community lead and so Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you can share a little bit about the specific impacts that the climate crisis has had on Latinx communities. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I think that there's this misconception that, you know, BIPOC communities in general, but, you know, this includes Latinx communities, that we don't really understand environmentalism, right? That, Mm -hmm. like, our our tios and our tias don't understand environmentalism, right? And maybe they don't know the, you know, the trendy terminology from time to time. Like I know my family members certainly don't, but I think we have to remember that BIPOC communities and particularly where I come from in Texas, you know, most of the communities that are most heavily and directly impacted by extreme weather or the climate crisis at large are predominantly black and Latinx communities. And these are the communities that are among the frontline communities that are the first to have their air and water sources compromised when Mm. weather cracks down, right? When the climate crisis cracks down. And I think that there, I think there's a lack of agency sometimes in how well communities know and understand that the climate crisis impacts them and impacts them at devastatingly higher rates than other communities. Like they know this. Mm -hmm. And I think that, yeah, sometimes we aren't always granted the most agency around our knowledge there. And I think that, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to look at some of the studies done, um, last year, some of the studies done that really do indicate that BIPOC communities, largely Latinx communities as well, uh, largely Latinx and black communities are more afraid of a climate crisis than other communities. And it's because they understand, they understand the impact that it has on their, on their communities. Um, I think one of the things that I really enjoyed, I shouldn't say enjoyed, but one thing that I found particularly fascinating unpacking last year was natural disasters Mm. and how they're beginning to hit coastal communities a lot harder and Latinx and black communities, particularly because of them inhabiting higher flood risk areas as just one example. So one of the books that I read last year um, about our fellow Americans in Puerto Rico uh, was We Fed an Island by Jose Andreas. And have you heard of this book? I have heard of the title, but I haven't read it. Yeah, I read it last year and I learned a lot of really fascinating information about just all the red tape that people have to go through just to put food in someone's hand. Mm. Like the, the process that organizations and volunteers have to go through just to put food in someone's hand, you're like, by the time you get it there, like it's been days, people are hungry, a crazy storm just hit. Like it's, it's just really wild. And so it, it's a really great book that puts a critical lens on a system that is not prioritizing just feeding people when they need to be fed, mm. um, but rather a system that prioritizes the ways in which some people might be able to profiteer off of natural disasters right? Um, and all the organizations that kind of jump in on the action, largely just to see how big of a, big of a cut that they can make mm. off of, you know, all the money flowing around. And what this leads to are, you know, headlines of 
aid and money flowing into hurricane aid projects and initiatives, but the lasting impact to help communities recover and rebuild in a more sustainable way that protects communities from future disaster ends up falling short. And I think that that's a really important, you know, thing for people to unpack, particularly if you live in an area where you have local communities that are heavily impacted by natural disasters or this, like, you know, extreme weather that's being exacerbated by the climate crisis. Right. Um, you know, and this is something that happens all over the country. So in, in the Northeast, you know, Hurricane Sandy hit this Brooklyn neighborhood, um, the Brooklyn neighborhood of Red Hook, mm-hmm. which is 85% black and, you know, Hispanic or Latinx. And there are similar issues with regards to community resilience uh, or resiliency in any event of extreme weather, really, like the recent freeze that we experienced here in Texas, for example. Um, so we have, yeah, I'm sure you heard about this. Uh, we have lower income neighborhoods here with mostly black and Latinx residents that have older homes with bad insulation and it's freezing outside. These communities don't always have, you know, an income safety net. So especially during a year of COVID, when building an income safety net is almost impossible. So people struggle to get resources that'll keep their families warm, prevent their food from spoiling, and be able to react accordingly when, I don't know, if your roof is leaking or your pipes freeze and burst and it's hella expensive to replace or fix. And, you know, forget about beyond that, even just the dissemination of information. So like Mm -hmm. looking up what zone you're in to see if your drinking water was compromised or is safe to drink is already so confusing like even just identifying what zone you're in so then imagine how confusing it is if you're a non-english speaker totally yeah there are so many so many layers and i think Mm -hmm. like i mean the obvious follow-up here is if you can talk a little bit about the crisis in texas particularly how there are you know millions and millions of people without power and um the governor like uh you know (laughs) opening up the entire state and not requiring masks anymore like this is just the beginning of another like full-on crisis um I'm just kind of Mm -hmm. curious about as someone you know you're from Texas you're an environmentalist like I'm kind of curious about (laughs) not only your thoughts on the how fucked the situation is but also like yeah where you know someone like me or someone like our listeners who like are not from that community but like want to best put our dollars or our support like how how do you recommend people um kind of like get involved in a way that's more helpful than harmful yeah i i think one of the things that i have really loved seeing this past uh these past six to seven months is you know, just just within my own view of watching IE and the concept of it grow is that people are starting to become a little bit more critical of larger organizations, larger aid organizations. And people are doing a lot of work, personal work, just via Instagram, which is, you know, so powerful to tap into grassroots efforts. Mm -hmm. So Jose Andreas, you know, the, the you explore this in the book a little bit, but it's a, a great reflection of what's happening on the ground right now. And it is, how do we just move around all this red tape that was built by these large organizations that are worried about legal this and that and how to profit off of this and how to, you know, making sure that we hit margins X, Y, Z. Jose was like, let me just skirt all of that Mm. and put food in someone's hand. So, (laughs) right. So what's happening now is a lot of grassroots efforts that have been around for a long time are being centered 
in these conversations, people that know how to just, you know, take a cooktop outside and start making tacos and share it with your community because everyone's hungry, mm-hmm. right? Start funneling resources directly there because those people are going to feed people within hours instead of days or weeks. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that is something I've loved seeing is people amplifying all of these. I'll, I'll go and I'll click through to see all the organizations that people are amplifying on Instagram right now. And I'll see that they are these just like tiny organizations that have just been doing this work for a long time, but don't have the clout of a UNICEF. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. And so people are starting to break down those mental barriers that society has built in us to trust, you know, the big orgs, like trust the big orgs because it's been hella vetted. Okay. First of all, vetted for what though? <laughs> and who's <laughs> vetting for, them? Yeah. So like, what does it mean to, what does it even mean to vet? These are the questions that we're asking and people are really frustrated with discovering people get really, I, and I understand I was really frustrated when I started this journey and I realized that, Oh, like a lot of these initiatives aren't actually having the impact that I was led to believe they were having. Mm -hmm. And maybe these small grassroots efforts don't have these huge marketing teams or don't have these dope lawyers, but they know how to feed people. They Mm. know, and and they're on the ground and they understand what their local communities need. They know what their neighbors need Mm -hmm. and who needs it first. Right. I, I was, stuck in Austin, um, because of the, the snow that was coming through, I was in a neighborhood where the roads were really icy. So you, you couldn't drive cause it's also very hilly in Austin. So mm-hmm. if you get on the road, your car might just start, you know, rolling on back. So I was kind of trapped in this neighborhood for a little while. And the family that I was with knew exactly who in the neighborhood had a newborn baby. Mm. and and needed to be prioritized like that house needed to be prioritized when people came to try and fix you know the energy and so that those are the things that grassroots efforts know that larger organizations don't know so that's something that i've really that was sorry that was a big roundabout answer but that's just something that i really love seeing (laughs) that's a really really like insightful answer i feel um, and maybe we'll, we'll actually come back to this question at the end, but I do want you to share some resources with folks who, who want to kind of learn more and like get involved, um, in, in a way that, like I kind of mentioned is more helpful than harmful, but let's, let's save that to the end. I actually want to transition a little bit, um, to the fact that you are really unafraid to use your platform to call out racism, right. And white mm-hmm. supremacy in environmentalism. And so I kind of want to hear a little bit of your opinion and your experience of how racism operates inside of this movement and where white environmentalists really need to be better allies. Oh my gosh. So many ways, (laughs) so many ways. Um, one of my favorite examples actually is something that, uh, Leah talks about a lot and she, she talks about at the beginning of her, um, I don't want to say beginning of her journey, but at the beginning of her kind of being the face of this new definition, Mm -hmm. uh, which is, you know, much to her surprise. She talks about how the environmentalists that she grew up around would march for salmon, um, you know, go out and march, march, protect the salmon. Mm -hmm. And she would march alongside them. But that when it came to marching for black lives, that they were nowhere to be seen. Mm -hmm. Like, where'd you go? What happened? I thought we were protecting people on the planet. So I, I think that one of the things that I hope 
white environmentalists need to embrace and do better, particularly this year, as a lot of these things are trending, because we are in many ways at the mercy of algorithms, unfortunately, mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. better or for worse. So like, yo, while it's trending, please be on it. Please, please consume it. It's coming into your feeds right now. We know this. Please don't ignore it and keep scrolling is unpacking the really harmful history of how environmentalism was even frameworked, how it was even built, um, just conceptually. You know, if when you unpack the, the history of just a park ranger, the history of park rangers are so problematic and rooted. Could you talk a little bit about that? I don't know anything about that. Yeah. So, okay. I, I think one of the things that we've learned this past year is that there is a really problematic history with the way that the police system was set up. Um, and how it was predominantly realized or it came to fruition to police black communities. Mm. And this is a very similar history with, with park rangers. So there's the super, you know, you take that same energy into the development of a park ranger system and what you have, what the, the result today, years and years later, is this traumatic relationship that BIPOC communities have with the outdoors. So before a white environmentalist might say, oh, well, you know, the reasons why white people you hike more than communities of color or people of color is because, you know, we're just more granola than they are. I've literally heard people say this. Mm. Like, they're, they care more about the environment. They um, identify more with things like camping and things like that, which is just so ridiculous. And I think that, one don't give yourself that much credit, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like you're not that cool. Okay. No, camping is super cool. And if you know how to camp props to you, but I think that it's about going a little bit deeper and understanding the implications around why communities of color have been pushed out of the idea of experiencing camping, camping, uh, camping is also an expensive endeavor, mm-hmm. right? So not only are you combating these different barriers that are logistical, right? Like cost, access, proximity to green spaces, but you're also grappling with a very intuitive and traumatic connection to nature that was built by white environmentalism. Mm. So really grappling and reckoning with that, I think is an important part of allyship in the environmental movement, because it's difficult for you to fully grasp why someone might have not had a similar outdoorsy upbringing as you, unless you're willing to hear the traumatic history of park rangers, of police systems, of white people calling cops on black and brown people for uh, being outside, um, like right. for sim- simple shit. So yeah, I, I think that unpacking history is like the number one, like please be willing to reckon with the fact that the history is so complex and is just laces the way that BIPOC navigate the outdoors even today. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is extremely helpful context. And so my last major question I have before we hear about your, you know, opinions and advice on resources and where uh, folks should be putting their dollars, more or Mm -hmm. less. um, Mm -hmm. What is next um, for IE? Where, Where do you all hope to see the movement go in the next year, in the next five years, in the next 10 years? What what are your goals and what do you hope uh, to achieve? Yeah, 
Um, honestly, we ask ourselves this question all the time. <laughs> so a lot of people don't know, but we are five, six, maybe we're almost seven months old. So we are oh, still brand new. I know we're so we're baby little organization and we love it. We've loved every minute of it. And I think that it's been wild to assess where we feel called to go. But I think that at this point, uh, one of the things that was really frustrating for me and so many people in our community prior to IE and prior to people being so open and willing and ready to embrace an intersectional lens on being applied to environmentalism was trying to bring vulnerable voices to the forefront of, of every issue. That was always, you know, you get the eye rolls or, you know, I would try to host a, I would have so many friends that would host sustainable fashion events in New York. And the minute I tried to host, and I would, and I would host successful events and discussions as well. But the minute that it became about cultural appropriation or the minute it came, became about fair trade labor rights, the, the community attendance changes, the participation changes, the sentiment changes, the sense of urgency changes, mm -hmm. which is wild to me. And so I think that for me, what's happening on social media right now, there, social media is such a powerful tool. And I, I think that what it's done for us as a community to be able to really rally around this notion and this idea of intersectional environmentalism has been really powerful. But I do want to give, I do want to make sure that the ways that we're building give people the opportunity to go beyond social media. So how can we let, how can we pass the mic to people in our community who have been doing work to unpack sustainable fashion as it relates to people? How can we build that avenue for people who are passionate about that to go learn from the people who have been doing this work for a long time? And how can we do that same thing in agriculture? How can we do the same thing in cannabis reform? How can we do the same thing in all these different topics? So that, I think, pulling people out of social media just to go beyond it, really using social media as a way to plant seeds, and then helping people get more involved on a, at a, on a grassroots level and on a, on a deeper educational level, how can we take people there and, and, and send them there? Um, that would be, that's my goal for the next five years. I love it. I love that so much. And you've definitely inspired me to learn more and read read more and just get more involved so kudos to you you are working it and so I would love to know that last question of kind of like who are you know organizations that you all really support how can people find more about this movement and learn more about you um, and your organization and in terms of like a guide I guess or a mini guide of like where folks can put their dollars um, yeah. to help people in need, especially right now in Texas. Um, there are a lot of other places also that, that need our help and uh, need our money. So what, what's your, what's your uh, opinion and your advice for all that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that in general, what we try to do is always identify organizations that are founded by community members um, and make sure that we're not just funneling all of our money into, I think that when the Black Lives Matter movement was resurging. There were just like the same huge organizations getting mm -hmm. blasted around. And we really tried to combat that in a way. And so I think that I don't want to limit it to only what's happening in Texas right now, because this is a lifelong journey that I would hope anyone listening is, is 
ready and willing to go on. And so I would say that, and this is what we try to do on our platform as well as to make this widely available is to hone in on the issues that you really love. Maybe that's, maybe that's low waste living. Maybe that's Mm -hmm. cannabis reform. Maybe it's sex ed, maybe it's uh, fashion, whatever your greatest passion is learning what it looks like to advocate for that on a grassroots level is so powerful. So what we did on our platform is every time we launched a study or a curation of resources on a new topic, we also listed organizations that we thought were great for people to tap into and follow and support. And so that's something that we're always going to continue to do is share grassroots organizations that are doing the work to make sure that they know that they're able to amplify what their communities need instead of, you know, having large organizations come in and try and tell them what they need. So that's something that we'll always continue to do. And I hope that, you know, based on whatever passion areas that people have, that they're able to identify grassroots organizations that they can follow and support. Absolutely. And what is your guys's handle? What is y'all's handle on social media, your website, uh, share that info so listeners can, can find you. Yes, absolutely. So the IE, it's the IE platform is at intersectional environmentalist. We have a website, which spoiler alert is getting a little bit of a makeover behind the scenes right now. So maybe when this episode comes out, it will already be launched. Hopefully. Oh my gosh. But yeah, so the website is just, uh, intersectionalenvironmentalist.com and we've got a lot of fun initiatives coming up that I think are going to help folks get more involved in those passion areas that they have so yeah I think I think no matter what yeah for sure uh I think that no matter what your passion is you are able to pursue it uh through the lens of being an intersectional environmentalist and I hope that the platform helps helps folks do that oh so inspiring thank you so so much for being on Deandra it has been such a pleasure to get to know you and talk to you and learn from you. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. How many different ways do you think I can say the word lube in 30 seconds? Let's give it a shot. Lube. Lube. Lubey, lubey, lubey. Lube. Lube. L to the U to the B to the E. Lube. Well, that was lubes. I mean, loads of fun. This phenomenal and very necessary lube break was brought to you by UberLube. Use promo code SEXEDDB for 10% off your purchase with free shipping at www.uberlube.com. Sex Ed with DB is supported by Clonawilly. Clonawilly has been all about dick since 96, and all kits are hand-assembled in Portland, Oregon. All materials are 100% body safe, extremely high quality, and easy to use and clean. Use promo code SEXED20 for 20% off your purchase of any Clona Willy or Clona Pussy kit at www.clonawilly.com. Follow them on IG at Clona Willy Kit. Meet Pandia Health. By people with uteruses, for people with uteruses, and led by a doctor, Pandia Health makes your life easier by bringing birth control by mail. Pandia Health offers free and confidential delivery of the pill, so you don't have to go out of your way to get the health care you need. Skip the trip to the pharmacy. Go to pandiahealth.com. That's P-A-N-D-I-A health.com. And use code SEXEDFREE to get a free telemedicine appointment for the first 50 people who sign up. Offer only valid in Arizona, California, Florida, Texas, and Wyoming. 
Our creator, co-producer, sound engineer, and host is me, Danielle Bezalow, aka DB. Our co-producer and communications lead is Catherine Cohen. Our main logo and banner graphic were created by Andrea Forgotch. Our social media intern is Leslie Lopez. Our music theme is by Hook Sounds. Our ad music is by my stepdad, Bill Gant. Thank you so much to our featured guests, partners, and our listeners. If you're interested in advertising with us, email us at sexedwithdb at gmail.com. For more sex ed content, follow us on Insta at sexedwithdbpodcast. Tune in next time.